welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host, and I'm here with the Auxiliary Bishop of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to be with you. Hey, Brandon. It's always a pleasure for me, too. Let's uh, update all of our listeners on the latest with the Word on Fire Bible. Now, oh, things yeah. have been somewhat chaotic the last few weeks. We kind of have been hyping and talking about the Bible <laughs> the last month or two, and then it, of course, launched on uh, last, last week, I think it was, something like that. But we launched it. Within a few hours, all of the leather copies were sold out. A few days later, all the hardcover copies were sold out. We've still got just a few paperback copies yeah. left. And the problem is with this long lead time because of the high quality of the materials, it's gonna take another 14 weeks or something like that for them to come back in stock. So it's been a little bittersweet for us. I know a lot of you have yeah. been emailing us saying, when can I order, when can I order, when can I get my copy? But I mean, Bishop, we were both frustrated that we sold out, but happy that we sold out, that so many people were excited about this, right? Yeah, it's a nice problem to have. Uh, it is a problem because we wanna, as you say, provide them right now. We have to wait a bit, but yeah, we were just overwhelmed. We had, uh, we thought supplies for the whole year of the sale of this thing, and within really a few days, they were sold out. So uh, I'd encourage people to be patient. They're on their way. They're being made as we speak at this uh, uh, book publishing, you know, place in, in Italy. I don't even know precisely where it is, but somewhere in northern Italy, uh, thousands and thousands of these Bibles are being produced. So just be patient. But we were delighted with. Um, you know, folks' response to it. Now, again, they're out of stock right now, but you can still go to wordonfire.org slash Bible, and you can, I guess the word is like pre-order or maybe yeah. back order a copy of the book so that when they come in, I think it'll be the end of September, early October, something like that, you'll be one of the first ones to get the second batch. We're expecting the second batch to go pretty quickly as well. So you might want to do that if you want to secure a copy of the new Bible. Yeah. Also, um, before we get into the topic here, I wanted to mention a change that we're making to the Word on Fire show. So we've been doing this podcast for five years. Um, we've mentioned a few times how we started it. Uh, we recorded the first episode the day after Bishop Barron was consecrated a bishop. We didn't release it for a couple months, but it basically is as old as Bishop Barron's episcopacy. <laughs> so yeah. five years, nearly 250 episodes every single week. And it's been a lot. It's a lot of work for Bishop Barron. It's a lot of work for myself, prepping and preparing these topics and these episodes. So at least for the time being, we've decided that we're gonna move from a weekly show to a bi-weekly show. So that means these discussion episodes will come out every two weeks. However, in the intermediary weeks, we're gonna release audio from all sorts of different other Word on Fire programs. So you're gonna hear audio from some of our fellows from the Word on Fire Institute. You'll hear audios from Bishop Barron's talks. So there'll still be weekly content coming out through this podcast, but the discussions will be every two weeks. I also wanted to mention that if you haven't checked it out already, go to YouTube and subscribe to Bishop Barron's sermon series, or Sunday sermon show. Um, we just started producing these and they've generated so much attention and excitement. I think each of your sermons bishops has, has like over 100,000 views, but it's basically Bishop Barron preaching on the readings for each Sunday. We've got a beautiful mm -hmm. uh, video studio set up. Um, and so I encourage you, if, you're, if you kind of are getting sad that these videos are gonna be slower coming out for this podcast, check out the videos on the Sunday sermon series because I think you'll love those as well. All right, well, with all those announcements out of the way, let's dive into today's topic, which is an international Q&A. Every now and then we take a whole group of questions from our listeners like you. You can send them in at askbishopbaron.com. 
Sometimes though we focus on one particular group of people. We do kids Q&As, we do non-Catholic Q&As. Today we're doing international Q&As. So all the questions come from countries outside of the United States. And I, I think you'll be excited as you're hearing these. Bishop Aaron and I were, when you hear all the different accents, it's a testament I think to how global this Word on Fire movement has become. So let's jump in. First one is from Peter. He's in South Africa and he's asking about love. Here it is. Hello, Bishop Barron. This is Peter from South Africa. I have a question for you regarding love. If love is to will the good of the other, then we are due it to all people. But how does one reconcile this love with a more specific, exclusive love between a husband and a wife? Which of these loves is higher? And how does one move from the general to the more exclusive? Thank you for your work. God bless you. I pray for you. Boy, first can I say, can we hire him as doing voiceover? That's a <laughs> He's going to be like the Word on Fire audiobook narrator moving forward. A beautiful forward. speaking voice, yeah. It's a good question, too. Um, and you're picking up on what I've said many times, simply echoing St. Thomas Aquinas, that to love is to will the good of the other. And that's true across the board. Whether you're loving, um, you know, somebody you've just met, or whether you're loving God, they're in the same general category of willing the good of the other. But within this life, certainly, there can be variations in that love, variations in intensity. So it's true, you've just met someone, let's say. Well, you want to will them good. And one way to do that is you, you know, shake, well, now in the coronavirus, you don't shake hands anymore. But, you know, you'd smile, you'd shake hands, you'd, you'd, you'd uh, uh, offer a friendly greeting. That's an expression of love. You're willing the good of the other. And then there's the love you show, let's say, to your wife. Well, that's a much more intense willing of the good of the other. And certainly this side of the eschaton, there's going to be this tremendous variety in the way and the style and the intensity of love, even though they all fall under the general category. You know, it's interesting, under this rubric, um, does God love everyone infinitely? Yeah, because that's what God is, right? God is infinite love. But does God love everyone to the same degree? And the answer there is no. And what I mean here is, looking at the question objectively. I remember Francis George, you know, one of my mentors, said, let's face it, God loved the Blessed Mother more than Francis George. And what he meant there was God willed a greater good to the Blessed Mother than he does to me or to Francis George or to you or anybody, because God willed her the good of, of, of keeping her free of original sin. Okay. Um, if I were to sit around and say, you know, it really bugs me that I'm not an angel. I mean, God willed an angel more good than he wills me, because God willed the angel a higher ontological uh, level, a greater perfection of being. Well, I mean, but I don't spend one second worrying about that. <laughs> I don't say, oh, I wish I were an angel. No, I mean, God willed me the good that I have, and I, I exult in that. And, it, and God loved me infinitely as he gave me that good. But looked at objectively, God can love some more than others. So that's the distinction Thomas Aquinas makes. But see, don't, don't emotionalize it. People will subjectivize that, like, oh, God has stronger feelings about you than me. That's not it. For whatever his purpose, and I can't fully discern that. I mean, why did God make angels? Why did he make beings higher than, than human beings? Well, I mean, to show his glory, to manifest his, his majesty? I, mean, I don't know. I, I, it's up to God. What I should do is say, boy, God in his infinite love, willed me these extraordinary goods that I have. Now, you know, respond in gratitude. 
let's say a, if a flower could engage in self-reflection, would the flower say, you know, I wish I were an animal. I could move around here. I'm just stuck in the ground. No, I mean, the flower in its own way gives glory to God. God willed it some good, but not as much good as he willed the animal, who can, has a much wider range. If an animal could come to self-reflection, would, would a dog say, looking at me, boy, look at that, I wish I were like that guy. Well, well no, I mean, the dog gives glory to God in his, in his way. So that's a way of approaching this question of, of love from, from God's perspective. Great question, Peter. Next, we go from South Africa to the Netherlands, where we hear from Thomas. Thomas is a Reformed Protestant student with a good question about the Eucharist. Here it is. Hmm. Dear Bishop Barron, my name is Thomas. I'm a Reformed Christian and theology student from the Netherlands. My question is about transubstantiation. Central to this question is John 6. And many Protestant theologians say it doesn't have anything anything to do with the Eucharist because it is uh, taking place before it was instituted. Could you elaborate on that? Thank you. Yeah, no good. Thank you for that question. Um, you know, one way to look at that is just from a biblical standpoint that in John's Gospel we don't have the institution narrative. So we have a description of the Last Supper that includes the washing of the feet and also that wonderful high priestly discourse of Jesus. But you don't have the institution narrative, as you do in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and also in 1 Corinthians. Um, so one theory is that what John did in his very poetic way is he, he took all that and put it in John 6. So in that episode, you have something like this intense Eucharistic theology because you don't have the institution narrative in, the, um, in his gospel. But I, I'd maybe say something even simpler, which is what Jesus says in John 6 is, the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. So he's just multiplied the, the loaves and fishes. The people are now after him because they, you know, they're fascinated by this. So Jesus uses that bread, that ordinary, not ordinary, it was multiplied miraculously, but still it's ordinary bread that people ate. He used that as a sign. Just as manna in the Old Testament, he used as a sign in anticipation of the Eucharist. So this bread that was miraculously multiplied and fed the body, he uses as a, a kind of metaphor or an anticipation of the bread that I will give. Eventually, the bread that I will give now at, at the Eucharist, the bread that I will give up and down the history of the church is my flesh for the life of the world. So I, I don't see a problem there with it being uh, anticipated in John 6. He's using the future tense and, and he's anticipating what he will do, but describing it in advance. Um, so maybe I'd use those two approaches uh, to that question. Bishop, I remember as a Protestant wrestling with John chapter 6, yeah. what was really pivotal to me was reading what the earliest of the church fathers had to say yeah. about John chapter 6, because almost all of them interpreted John 6 as pointing toward the real presence of the Eucharist. And so if, if he wasn't talking about that, then all of the apostles and the earliest Christians got it wrong from the very beginning, which I don't think is a very tenable position. But if you want more on that, go to churchfathers.org. It's a website that has quotes from the church fathers and click on the Eucharist and you can see what a lot of the earliest Christians had to say about it. So you might find that helpful, Thomas. Okay, next up we hear from Richard. He's in England and Richard is an Anglican who is thinking about converting to Catholicism, but he had a question about predestination and free will. Here it is. Uh. 
Hello Bishop Barron, my name's Richard and I'm an Anglican calling from the English Midlands. I find myself increasingly moving towards a Catholic faith, but my question is, what does the Catholic Church say about predestination and free will? Do you believe God only selected a defined number for salvation? God bless you and your ministry. Thank you. It's a great question. We need a whole year of theology fully to answer it. I used to teach this business when I was at uh, Mundelein, especially the course I would do in the Reformation and the Council of Trent. And we looked at the whole Molinist issue, you know, which happened after the Council of Trent, where this issue was, was uh, front and center. It's famously vexed. It's famously difficult. Let me state the Catholic position just kind of baldly and then maybe say a few simple things about it. The Catholic Church does not hold to double predestination, which is the view that God, from the beginning, has predestined some for glory and some for damnation. That by a kind of active exercise of his will, he sends some to heaven, some to hell. So it's anticipated, certainly in Luther's bondage of the will, it's clearly laid out in Calvin's Institutes, precisely that view. The Church has, has stood against that. Um, our position can be seen in St. Thomas Aquinas, who does indeed hold to predestination. Read question 23 of the first part of the Summa to see the details. But Thomas would hold to predestination to glory, but not predestination to damnation. So not a double predestination. Let me make another step. Salvation is not something which is under our control, right? So I can, you know, we're here, Brandon, because of our technology and, and our lights and microphones and cameras. We were able to do this on our own steam, so to speak, and the gifted people around us who've set all this up. We can do this. It's in our natural power to do it, right? Or I can, uh, you know, I can build a bridge or I can uh, engage in warfare or whatever it is human beings do on their own steam. But eternal life? No, that's out of our control. We can't by nature attain to that. Now go right to the, back to the beginning of the Bible in a way, the grasping at, at uh, you know, friendship with God is something that we can't do. Um, therefore, we have to rely utterly on grace. The question of salvation is a question of, of does God give the grace? So is that pre-known by God, the grace that he will give to those who are saved? Yeah. Does he include that from the beginning in his providential design? Uh-huh, yeah. Therefore, those who are saved are predestined to be saved. Now, does God predestine the damned? No, damnation is a, is a failure of the, of the human will. It's a falling away from God on our own steam if you want. You know? So that's Thomas Aquinas, that there is predestination to glory, but not double predestination. So that's where we pull back. Also, look at the Council of Trent for details on that, too, as they wrestle with the reformers. Just a, one last step. You mentioned free will, and that's the famous problem, you know. Quick answer. Um, someone who knows me would know if they want to get me to the Santa Barbara Bowl next week at 8 o'clock, what would they do? They would arrange for Bob Dylan and his band to be performing at the Santa Barbara Bowl at 8 o'clock next week, right, on Saturday. Furthermore, they would probably talk to uh, Noel, my scheduler, and say, now, let's, let's make absolutely sure there's nothing else. There's nothing competing with, with you know, this possibility. 
They, they, would, they would arrange things in such a way that I would certainly will to go to the Santa Barbara Bowl. Because they, they know all that about, I love Bob Dylan. They know there's nothing standing in the way that could possibly compete with that. Uh, there's nothing stopping me like physically. They've cleared out all of that. And so I end up at the Santa Barbara Bowl as they wanted at eight o'clock on Saturday. Okay, did they, within the human context, pretty much absolutely know that I was gonna get there? Yeah, yeah, probably as sure as human beings can be. And did they force me to go? No, 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 I went freely. What they did though is they lured my freedom in such a powerful way that I did what they wanted. Okay, you know, it's, I hope you see the, the point here. Now think about God. God who knows me better than I know myself, who knows my resting and my, arise, my rising. He discerns my purpose from afar. God knows everything about me, every motivation, every desire. Can God so arrange things so that I follow the prompting of his will inexorably and yet freely? And the answer seems to me is yes. And that's the resolution. Now again, I'm oversimplifying a bit here, but the resolution of this famous dilemma of divine you know, foreknowledge, divine predestination, and human freedom that actually they're, they're not in conflict once we understand freedom properly, not as sheer arbitrariness, but rather this um, capacity to seek the good. Once we see that, then, then the problem is largely dissolved. Bishop, what does Thomas say if you have some people that are predestined for glory and no one's predestined for hell, what about all the people that are not predestined for glory? Does that mean there's no hope for them, or what do we do with, with all those people? Well, I'm a little reluctant to go into it further because it's such a complicated issue, but bluntly, in St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, and it, it relates to our first question. Thomas says, does God love all people? Yes, of course, because in the measure that he gave them being, he loves them, right? He willed them some good. But Thomas says he doesn't will every good for everybody. To some, now this is again Aquinas, to some, he wills the good of eternal life. To others, he doesn't. He doesn't will them that good. Uh, and so they fall away by their own bad choice. And again, I, I'm reluctant, Brandon, because it's such a complicated issue and there's a lot more to say about it. But that's Thomas. Uh, he doesn't will everyone every good. Now, there are other theologians. There are other theological voices, so I want to stress that. That's Thomas. Um, Read the Council of Trent for a somewhat balancing perspective on that. Let's go next to Linda. She's in Canada, and she asked a common question. We've heard this, I think, a few times over the years on the podcast about why God needs us to worship mm -hmm. Him and to make sacrifices and to love Him. So here's Linda's question. Hi, it's Linda from Canada. My question is, why does God need to be worshipped and glorified? In human terms, that would be a very insecure need. Um, and why did he demand sacrifices be made to him to the point of sacrificing his son? It appears that his favor, his love, are conditional. Yeah, these good searching questions today. Um, let me just say it emphatically. God does not need our sacrifices. God does not need 
our existence. <laughs> God does not need our moral excellence. God doesn't need anything because God is God. God is, is the sheer act of to be itself. God is utter perfection. Uh, St. Irenaeus, you know, Brandon, very early on makes this point in the Adversus Horasis again and again, that the God of the Bible is not a God of neediness. And Irenaeus knew very well that the pagan gods and goddesses did indeed exist in this kind of needy relationship with the world, and that they demanded sacrifice in this, in this needful manner, right? Not true of the God of the Bible. Now, how do we know that? Well, because God is the maker of all things, of heaven and earth. So therefore, what, I got to return something of earth because God needs it? What do you mean? He gave it to me in the first place, and he sustains it every moment in existence. God couldn't possibly need anything from this world. Okay, so follow the correct instinct behind your question. So then why is God demanding all of these sacrifices throughout the Bible? Well, it's not because he's got some hang-up, not because he's, he's caught in a, in a conditioned sort of relationship, but rather... And Aquinas says this very clearly. We benefit from sacrificing unto God. You know, look at, is it Psalm, I want to say 50, isn't it, Brandon, where, you know, you think I need your sacrifices? I own all the beasts on the, on the hillside, the Lord says. Yeah, that, that's the hermeneutical key. I, I don't need these sacrifices. But, see, you need them. Why? Because it's so good for you to indeed take some aspect of creation return it to me as an act of thanksgiving and praise and supplication so that you might become more aligned unto God. Sacrifices for us, not for God, right? Now, go right to the, to the cut to the chase, as your question did, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. What is that but Jesus now acting as the representative of the entire human race? having taken upon himself all the dysfunction of the world, now like the great and definitive sacrificial lamb, on behalf of the human race, offering himself as a great act of thanksgiving, supplication, and reparation to God the Father, not as though God the Father needs it. So the Aquinas says, for example, God could have saved and forgiven us in some other way, but there was no greater way for God to do it than in this marvelous act by which God himself identifies with us to a degree, to such a degree, that he becomes the representative of the human race before God. So just get it out of the context of God's neediness and put it always in the context of how we benefit from offering sacrifice to God. Then the thing straightens out and then, then we understand all these dynamics within the Bible. Thanks, Linda. Next up, we go to Emmanuel, who's in Mumbai, India. So all the way on the other side of the world. Here's his question. Hi, Bishop Barron. This is Emmanuel calling from Mumbai, India. My question is this. Can a proclaimed dogma be changed or withdrawn? For instance, can the dogma of the Immaculate Conception be declared invalid by a future pope? Thank you. Yeah, good question. Now we're into ecclesiology. And the, the short answer is no. I mean, if a dogma has been formally defined by the church, no, it can't be changed. What's interesting, the one you bring up, of course, the Immaculate Conception is, is fascinating because go back to the Middle Ages, there was debate about it, right? So, so Duns Scotus is the great advocate of the Immaculate Conception. Um, Thomas Aquinas is against it. 
my hero, the greatest theologian in the church, the common doctor, uh, stood against it for different theological reasons. And for centuries it was debated, centuries. The night before the formal declaration, when the thing was, was being debated in the Vatican, we're now in the 19th century, Dominicans gathered in the, in the lovely church of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, one of their headquarter churches in Rome, and they prayed that, that their own man, Aquinas, would be vindicated. Well, he wasn't. Duns Scotus was vindicated, and this dogma was declared. Um, good, okay. And the Dominicans, to their great credit, said, okay, I guess we're wrong about this one, and we, we, let's get with the program. So once it's been defined, no, it can't be undone. Now, bring in John Henry Newman at this point. Can and ought a dogma, a doctrine, even formally declared, be allowed to develop? Yeah, sure. And that's Newman's great idea, that ideas exist not on the page, but in the play of lively minds. So from the time of the declaration, let's say, of the Immaculate Conception, has that dogma been thought about, analyzed, uh, wondered at, uh, debated? Sure. And have different aspects of it emerged and different insights come? Yeah, sure. And so dogma or doctrine can develop. Think of the great Christological councils in the early centuries when the church kind of hammers out its position on, on Jesus. Well, in a way, that's the end of the conversation, and, and correctly so. I mean, we don't reopen Arianism. You know, we don't reopen Nestorianism. Like, I wonder, maybe, maybe Arius was right. But nevertheless, those were also beginnings, right? Because they were the beginning of, of ongoing reflection. Um, within the framework defined by the dogma, of course, and that's Newman. A development never goes back on what, what uh, preceded it. It never undoes it. But dogmas unfold like rivers and like trees, and they show forth different dimensions. So that's, that's the tension. Uh, I find in the course of my lifetime, this thing gets muddled a lot. You know, either you so petrify a doctrine that you just sort of lock it in place, and then you just, just hand that on like a football. Well, that's not right. On the other hand, I grew up with this, you know, hey, everything's up for grabs, and you know, we used to say this, but now we say that, and no, that's crazy. The, the right answer is Newman's great middle ground uh, of the development of doctrine. Great question, Emmanuel. Next up is Fiona. She is in Dublin, Ireland, and she's asking about Jesus's economic views. Here she is. Hmm. Hi, Bishop Barron, Brandon, and all at Word on Fire. My name is Fiona. I'm from Dublin in Ireland, and my question is two questions. Was Jesus a socialist? And how best to respond when that comment is thrown into a debate to shut down discussion? Thank you for all you do. God bless your work. Again, what a lovely accent Fiona has, huh? And you know, I was thinking as she was asking that question is I would have sounded like that if my grandfather had stayed in Dublin. My grandfather was born in Dublin and as a little tiny kid was carried over to the States by his, his sisters. His parents had died and his young sisters brought him over to America. The result is that I talk like this. <laughs> I sound like I'm from Chicago. God help me, I wish I sounded like that. Um, yeah, it's a good question. Socialism, you know, is an economic, um, theory, an economic system uh, that applies to uh, nation states or to, to great societies. I think it's fair to say that Jesus says nothing about economic organization at that level. I don't think you can ever point to Jesus and say, oh yeah, he's advocating you know, capitalism or the market economy or socialism or communism or distributism. You know, I, Jesus 
speaks the word of grace and salvation to us. He speaks from the heart of God. He speaks, he himself is the word of God and is drawing us into the power of the divine life. Now, do we take from that ethical implications? Yes, indeed. And we can discern in the teaching of Jesus certain great ethical principles that have undergirded a Catholic understanding of personal morality and, and public morality, if you want. Can we look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, yeah, these are the great principles that, that should be informing you know, the whole of our life. But as we keep going in that process, drawing from the word of Jesus certain ethical principles and now applying them to, let's say, grand socioeconomic questions, um, we're getting further and further away from the explicit teaching of Jesus. We're looking now at applications and implications of it. Now, my point in saying that is I don't think it's ever right to say Jesus clearly advocates, you know, the following system. Um, in its social teaching, the Catholic Church is opposed to socialism, and it says that many times, beginning with Leo XIII in 1891, coming right up through the you know, contemporary popes. Um, and go through, there's five reasons offered by Leo XIII, look them up in Rerum Navarum, but the Church uh, stands against socialism. At the same time, is the Church the great advocate of the poor, the great advocate of drawing more and more people into um, a, a society of opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. Do we make the preferential option for the poor paramount? Yes, absolutely. But I wouldn't go so far as to say that we can find a clear endorsement of any particular uh, economic system in Jesus. You know, at one point, Brandon, our friend uh, C.S. Lewis, um, I think it's somewhere in mere Christianity, uh, when he said, well, I guess if we look at the Acts of the Apostles and that famous you know, description of what life was like, and they, they all brought their goods, put them at the feet of the apostles who distributed them according to need, right? Which is kind of a classic description, if you want, of a more socialist or more you know, communist approach. And he said something like, well, I guess we'd have to admit maybe he's a, you know, the church should be more socialist than it is. Well, I mean, okay, but to extrapolate from that moment in the early history of the church and how that small community organized its, its economic life to, let's say, a nation state, uh, I think would be illegitimate. We can't like, just point to that episode and say, oh, there it is. The church should be, you know, is advocating socialism. So I would go back to Jesus himself, the great ethical principles, and then look at the Catholic social teaching to see what the... Um, the best application of those principles are to the, um, to the economic situation. All right, let's take one more question today. This one comes from Joanna. She's in Taipei, Taiwan, hmm. and she's asking what training she needs in order to evangelize. Here it is. Hmm. Hi, Bishop Barron. My name is Joanna from Taipei, Taiwan, and my question is, what are the essential personal qualities or qualifications in order to evangelize the culture? Is it necessary to have a degree in theology? And if so, which schools or programs would you recommend for a lay person? Thank you for answering my questions, and God bless. I just love all the, the accents from around the world and these, and these questions. You know, no, you don't need a degree in theology to be an evangelizer. In fact, every baptized person is called to be an evangelizer because everyone's meant to be a prophet. So first of all, that, you don't need a degree in theology. Having said that, Heck, if you can get one, sure. And do all you can to inform your mind about these great questions. So I think one of the qualities of a good evangelist is um, you're smart. Because, you know, 
Brandon, you and I both know this, uh, young people that you talk to especially are filled with questions. And if all we're doing is, you know, we're being friendly to people, which is great, <laughs> but if we don't have some answers to their questions, then we're probably not going to evangelize very effectively. So not necessarily a degree, but I think to, to be well-informed, to be well-read, uh, to know something about apologetics, to know what the typical questions are that people tend to have. Uh, this show and others like it, it's not a bad place to start. Say, okay, here's what's on people's minds, you know. But in terms of other qualities, I think uh, a deep faith yourself. You can't give what you don't have, right? If you don't have a relationship with the Lord, and here I'm following Pope Francis in his recent uh, statements, you know, that it's key that you are not just knowledgeable about the Catholic faith and its history, that you're in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, that you've, you've found friendship with him, and you want to share that. So I think that's key. Related to that, of course, is prayer. If you're not a person of prayer, you're not cultivating a friendship with Jesus. You don't have a friendship with Jesus, you're not going to share it with other people. Um, I'd say something else is a knowledge of the environing culture. Uh, what's going on in the world? What's on people's minds? Uh, what are their concerns and anxieties? Um, what are their, their frustrations? What are the typical questions they have? Uh, what's happening in the culture? What's engaging their attention already? I think being aware of that is key for an evangelizer. So prayer, uh, friendship with the Lord, study, uh, knowledge of the culture, I think those are all good things. And maybe if I can end with a sort of bald uh, you know, advertisement, uh, the Word on Fire Institute uh, is designed to do all that. So our institute, which includes all these courses and lectures and videos and all sorts of things, and eventually is growing into you know, a community of people that will be able to talk to each other. It's all of the above, I would say. It's prayer, it's intimacy with the Lord, it's study, it's knowledge of the culture. Uh, that's what it's designed to do. So I might say, uh, join the Institute would be a good way to uh, prepare yourself to evangelize. I'd echo that, Joanna. One of the encouraging things about this Institute is it's become a global movement. You're from mm. Taiwan. We have other Taiwanese students in there, students from all over Asia, Africa, Europe, South America. Um, so you'll find people from your own country, maybe nearby you, who are interested in these same things. So you can build a, a community and find camaraderie there. Also, before we end this episode, I wanted to highlight the latest issue of the Word on Fire Institute journal. This is a beautiful publication we publish four times a year, quarterly. The latest issue is on cinema. And Bishop, I thought I'd maybe give you just a minute here to share a few words about it. Oh, it's lovely, yeah. I just got my copy a few days ago. Uh, there's a series of really good articles. It's beautiful to look at, as always. Uh, I've got a little interview with Jared Zimmer, who's the director of the Institute, about kind of my relationship to movie going over the years and why I've used film. But a lot of really interesting people have chimed in. And, you know, we're a movie-going culture. That's one of the great bearers of the culture today. So that's what it's about. Uh, it's good, it's true, it's beautiful, the Institute Journal. So the only way you can get that is by being a part of the Word on Fire Institute. It's exclusively for Institute members. Uh, you can find out more at wordonfire.institute slash journal. And that's where you can also sign up for the Institute yourself. Well, thanks so much for watching and listening, and we'll see you guys in two weeks for the next episode of the Word on Fire show.